You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. This episode is brought to you by Palo Alto Networks, the leader in cybersecurity. As AI-driven attacks increase, organizations can't afford to have network security that's stuck in the past. Discover how Palo Alto Networks can help you predict what's coming and proactively secure against it with a zero-trust, AI-powered network security platform built to secure whatever, whenever, wherever. To learn more, visit paloaltonetworks.com slash network security platform. Hello, and welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Peter Ernest, the executive director of the museum. I served for some 36 years in the Central Intelligence Agency, largely as what is called an operations officer or a case officer. Every month we'll be bringing you interesting talks with visitors, with authors, with others who have something to do with the world of intelligence and espionage. My guest today is a rather well-known journalist and author, Max Holland. He's the editor of the website Washington Decoded and contributing editor to the Wilson Quarterly and The Nation. Uh, He is the author of a book that came out just several years ago, The Kennedy Assassination Tapes, which were the White House conversations of President Johnson regarding the assassination and the Warren Commission and the aftermath. Uh, He is currently working on a book on the Warren Commission. Max, welcome to the International Spy Museum. Thank you for having me. What we're talking about today is a book that is about to appear, which is called Leak. And the subject of his book is Mark Felt, who was the very senior FBI executive, uh, who perhaps is best known to many of you as the man identified as Deep Throat. Right. And Mark Felt was a very senior executive, in fact, one of the two or three people in line to succeed J. Edgar Hoover. And J. Edgar Hoover, uh, interestingly, uh, passed away just weeks before the famous or infamous Watergate break-in. And so in the aftermath of that, not only uh, was there a... a uh, what has been described as a, a struggle for, to succeed Hoover uh, within the FBI, or possibly the president then, Nixon, would have appointed an outsider, but simultaneously the investigation when the interest in the Watergate break-in. So, Max, welcome, and I wonder if you could just give our listeners just a summary account of that period, of the break-in. Okay, well, Hoover died in May 72. Um, President Nixon appointed an acting director because he didn't want a confirmation fight during an election year. This is the first time that the FBI director had to be confirmed by the Senate. So I appointed an acting director, a little-known lawyer by the name of L. Patrick Gray III, who had been in the Justice Department. And because he was the acting director, he was promised an inside track to the directorship But he wasn't promised the job, so he was in this between world. And then the first thing that drops on his head 
And Richard Helms had a very memorable line. Imagine coming to the FBI directorship and having the Watergate break-in drop in your lap you know, a month after you'd gotten there. This, of course, was an extremely highly sensitive investigation. And Mark Felt, who was the number two under Pat Gray, saw it as an opportunity to subvert Gray's chances of getting the nomination. And so he started leaking. And he leaked not only to the Washington Post, but Time Magazine. And probably the more important stories to Time Magazine. And through these leaks, he hoped to show President Nixon that Gray wasn't up to the job. And if you really wanted someone in control of the Bureau, you'd appoint an insider, most likely Mark Felt. The problem came that Nixon found out that Felt was leaking. He found out in mid-October 72. And after that, of course, he was... He wanted to fire Felt immediately, but his aides cautioned him not to do that, for they feared what Felt would say if he were let loose. Um, but the, so the the war of the FBI succession, as I call it, um, continued on into 1973. Gray failed miserably at his confirmation hearings. And then Nixon pointed another interim director, William Ruckelshaus, who fired Felt for leaking, or for what he thought he had leaked. But all this takes place uh, with Watergate in the backdrop, and it's the interplay between the two that is the story I try to tell in my book. It's basically about a year, June 72 to June 73, with an epilogue about what happens to Felt. You know, he's identified his deep throat, that whole long, uh, you know, search, sort of like the Judge Crater search. <laughs> we, uh, <clears throat> I'm sure people today reading about that period hear the word Watergate. There was a break-in, and just what was broken into, what was the, what, what do we now believe was the purpose of the break-in? Okay, well, uh, in the mor early in the morning of June 17, 1972, five men were discovered by the Washington police having broken into the Democratic National Headquarters at the what was then the new Watergate complex. And at first, they thought it was a burglary. There'd been quite a few burglaries in the Watergate complex because it was expensive to live there, expensive offices. And then they discovered these devices to intercept communications, both bugs and wiretaps. And it became an FBI case pretty quickly after that. Um, at first, the FBI, the, a lot of the f burglars had CIA backgrounds or connections, so they thought it might be some covert operation. So there's initially a concern it was a CIA operation, but then it was pretty quickly discovered that one of the men had was the director of security for the what was called the president's uh, the committee to reelect the president, namely President Nixon. This was James McCord. And then it became quickly a political investigation. Um, these men were indicted in September 1972. They were tried in January 1973. They had been paid money secretly to keep quiet, so they all pled guilty and said that there were no higher-ups involved. And then, partly because of Pat Gray's confirmation hearings, when he started letting loose details of the FBI's investigation, the cover-up started falling apart because what Gray said happened went directly against what the Nixon White House had said happened. And 
By the spring of 1973, of course, the whole thing erupted into a, you know, the biggest political catastrophe that's hit a president since, I don't know, Teapot Dome. You touched on the fact that uh, several of the men, including James McCord, had been CIA employees. In fact, I think two or three of them had actually been there long enough to retire. And we now know uh, from, I think, the White House tapes that Nixon had it t attempted at one point early on in this in this uh, in this affair to try and and deflect the FBI investigation by saying, well, why not? By saying to Gray, as I recall, uh, and and to Helms and, and his deputy Walters, uh, why don't we just say that uh, if you pursue this any further, you're you're sort of getting into CIA equities and and that's a covert operation and that's national security and we d we don't want to do that. And I think that's been pretty well disposed of, I think, historically now. And I think you do that as well in your book, the so-called CIA connection. Right. What I tried to do is tell the story because it's one of the things Felt did not tell Bob Woodward about. And if you think Felt was a whistleblower and, you know, someone who's upset about the lawlessness of the White House, why didn't he tell Woodward about this attempt to implicate the CIA in the break-in? What the White House wanted to do for about two weeks was, was uh, they couldn't shut off the whole inv FBI investigation. That was clearly impossible. But they wanted to keep it from sensitive areas. And one of the most sensitive was campaign donations to the committee to reelect. And some money had been funneled through Mexico. And so what they tried to do is they called in Richard Helms, the director of CIA, his number two, Vernon Walters, who happened to have just been appointed by President Nixon. He was a very close friend of President Nixon's. And they told him, look, the FBI wants you to uh, uh, claim that CIA equities are at stake, so they're not to investigate any part of the Mexico City angle. And that, you know, where there were meetings, and just to make a long story short, the th thing fell apart after two weeks because Helms wouldn't go along with it. And eventually the FBI said, you know, unless you tell us we can't do this. We're going to interview the people down there that we think we need to interview. So that was a effort that Mark Felt knew about. He didn't tell Woodward about until almost a year later, and it was one of the it was you know the straw that broke Nixon's back, so to speak, because when it came out that the White House had attempted to use the CIA to block just even a part of the FBI's investigation. You know, all hell broke loose. And that that turned out, in, in retrospect, to be one of Helms's finest hours. That is his very, very strong stand against uh, using the CIA in any way to cover any aspects of this up. Right. He knew he had it, it, a bad, it had a bad odor. Okay. He, he didn't quite know what was up, but it had a real bad odor. And he had told Gray, uh, you know, before even before this effort, you know, I've talked to our people. You know, we know these people who were captured, but we don't know anything about it. And I think you, you also put your finger on another aspect, that once this uh, a burglary was uh, uh, revealed to involve things like bugs and taps and the FBI was brought in, at the working level of the FBI, this was now an investigation underway with all of the sort of interviews that have to follow, talking to principals and so forth. In other words, this... This didn't. This this investigation began exactly where it should have uh, right. by the FBI, by a federal office, and so that got underway and proceeded down the track. 
One of the big fallacies I try to talk about is, um, you know, the difference between the initial legal results from the investigation and the extent of the investigation. I mean, the investigation was the biggest since the investigation of President Kennedy's assassination. It was a huge effort involving, I don't know, 40 or 50 field offices, you know, dozens of agents, full-time basis. Uh, and E. Howard Hunt, who was one of the men who was later arrested in connection with the burglary, uh, had a statement, you know, if people think the FBI didn't investigate this, you know, to the nth degree, they're quite mistaken. But it was that imbalance between the initial results, which was, you know, nobody higher up was found culpable, uh, that caused people to wonder if the FBI had been thwarted or something. And they hadn't been thwarted at all. And that was one of the things that felt was telling Woodward was that Gray was, you know, dragging his feet. It was completely untrue. That's another thing I try to point in my book is Woodward and Bernstein wrote that, you know, felt would never lead them astray. That's quite far from the truth. He told them a lot of lies. Let's just, this is a good point, to put the Woodward-Bernstein revelations from Deep Throat into some sort of perspective. In other words, the investigation now was underway. And as you just said, it, was, it involved a lot of people. It was very thorough. Right. What then was the role of the revelations, essentially, that uh, Woodward was getting from uh, from uh, Mark Felt? Okay, what Felt was doing was he was providing details and directions of the FBI's investigation to Woodward. So that essentially what the FBI was doing would appear sometimes days, sometimes weeks later in the Washington Post. And of course, since the FBI wasn't talking openly about an ongoing investigation, it looked like the Post was investigating you know, Watergate and breaking all these stories. But they broke very little that the FBI didn't know about. It was just that they they were doing it in public, and the FBI was keeping quiet about it. So they were following the FBI's investigation. They were interviewing the same people. Now, the FBI thought that people who were working on the investigation, the field agents, thought some of their interviews were being, you know, shown wholesale to Woodward and Bernstein. They weren't. All that was happening was that Woodward and Bernstein were talking to the same people after the FBI did, and these same people, people who worked at the committee to re-elect the president, were telling the Woodward and Bernstein the same things they had told the FBI, namely that money had been paid to the burglars uh, um, in, and how the money had been collected and the documents had been destroyed after the break-in and that uh, it was definitely a political operation. Well, I know at one point in, in your own book, Leak, that uh, one of your sources makes the point that essentially what you've just said, however, I think the source makes the point that it was the fact that their revelations were in the press that played a role in, in keeping the matter in the public eye and keeping it uh, sort of as a, as a political issue. In other words, if they hadn't done that, is it conceivable that Nixon could have gone on and served out his four years? In other words, that they played a role in accelerating uh, the interest, and of course, eventually there was a, there was the the uh, commission. There was an or, there was a, a select committee on the Hill that looked right. into it. But I'm just trying to get at what what was the effect of what they were 
Well, there's, there, that's a very right, interesting question. Yeah. It's kind of counterfactual history. Uh, on the one hand, there's no doubt that the stories, when you uh, listen to presidential conversations, for example, you, you'll be surprised how often they're reacting to what happens in the newspaper. They open the newspaper that day and they're infuriated or about a leak or something. And, you know, the, what they do that day is influenced by what's in the newspaper. So there's no doubt, especially in those days when we didn't have the Internet and, and newspapers were much more powerful, uh, there's no doubt it had an influence. It had an influence on Judge Sirica, in whose courtroom the burglars were tried. And, you know, he knew there was – he felt – after reading all these stories, there was something more to it, and he wasn't going to rest. And some people are actually critical of his extrajudicial uh, uh, antics in the courtroom because he did some unusual things for a judge who's supposed to be impartial, but putting that aside. And there's no doubt it helped create the Senate Watergate Committee, the stories in the newspaper, you know, the formation of it and the and their views. And in fact... One of Bob Woodward's uh, high school friends was hired as a chief investigator. So, I mean, there's no doubt the Washington Post stories had an influence. On the other hand, uh, if you talk to the prosecutors, they weren't done with the case. Once the burglars were found guilty, they were going to get serious jail time for them unless they turned state's evidence as a way of pressuring them. And one cracked. James McCord, he wrote a famous letter to Judge Sirica saying perjury had occurred during the trial and that people pressured him to say the CIA was responsible. So um, there's no doubt the stories had an impact. Whether things would have cracked, I, th I still think they would have. Um, the real pr significance, and I think I said this in one paragraph, maybe I should have spent more time, is that the story has created a credibility gap for Nixon because all along, John Mitchell, the Attorney General, and the director of the Committee to Re-elect the President, we didn't have anything to do with this. This was extracurricular activity by James McCord, our Director of Security. Just because Gordon Liddy is involved and he happens to be a lawyer here, you know, we had nothing to do with it. And then when these stories come out and they're still denying any involvement, uh, and then, of course, the thing starts to crack. The press is merciless after that. I mean, you know, the, I don't think we've ever seen anything uh, like it was then in terms of press coverage of a presidential scandal. And you mentioned there the, the uh, congressional committee that was formed under uh, Irvin, or Irwin. Um, Senator Irwin, yes. S S yes. Sam Irvin, yeah. Sam Irvin, yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, but it was in that proceeding where the matter of the recordings in the Oval Office were surfaced. And that then led to, of course, to actually hearing Nixon's own uh, efforts at, 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 at do it, engaging in some sort of cover-up of this activity. Right. You had the testimony of John Dean, who had been the, the desk officer for the cover-up as the White House counsel. He had been the person who was... I liken him to see on the old Ed Sullivan show, you know, they had that guy who would have the plates, you know, start rotating the plates and he'd run from one end to the other. And that was like John Dean in the cover-up. I mean, he was trying to juggle all these equities and political and legal interests. And he did it kind of successfully until the spring of 73. And then he cracked when it looked like he was going to absorb the blame.
And of course, his testimony was devastating. But then it was President Nixon's word against his White House counsel. So no one knew where the truth, you know, how to prove who was telling the truth. But then Alexander Butterfield, who was an aide in the White House, was asked one question, and he said, there are tapes, there are recordings of President Nixon. And of course, that created a whole other legal fight over whether the tapes could be made public. Some people advised Nixon to burn them. He didn't burn them. He thought he would never have to turn them over. He was forced to turn them over, and they showed essentially that what John Dean said was the truth. So there was something of a cause of, of a cause effect in that the intense uh, interest in the press, which obviously led to a degree by Woodward and Bernstein, was one of the things that led to the formation of the committee, and it was the committee that surfaced the fact of the, I mean, unintentionally, because the witness sort of blurted it out, right. the fact of the tapes, which then proved to be really the nail in the coffin. Right. Yeah. Um, Let's. I'd like to come back to John Dean because I know uh, you spoke with John Dean. He was a, a source of a number of things you say in the books, and, and he played an absolutely critical role here. The heart of your book really is, uh, is Mark Felt and what motivated Mark Felt to do what he did. Uh, he's been an enigma throughout uh, so much of recent history to those who follow political events and and it's interesting how many people devoted hours and hours and hours of trying to identify, quote, deep throat, and still didn't. Some came up with Mark Felt, some came up with others. Could you just speak about that for a moment? Because there were certain perceptions of Mark Felt's uh, motivations which changed through time. Right. The uh, Mark Felt was uh, revealed to exist as deep, well, let me put it this way, Deep Throat was revealed to exist in 1974 when Woodward and Bernstein wrote uh, their book, All the President's Men. It was a huge bestseller. It was the best-selling book of all time at that time. And it was uh, not, that I don't think they knew what they were getting into when they introduced him as a character because he was only one of several sources in the book. But because of this, I uh, get partly because of his you know, name, which was taken after a pornographic movie in 1972. Um, it just attracted the attention of the media and started this guessing game. Now, Mark Felt actually was the number one suspect initially. There was an old uh, Washington editor named Frank Waldrop who had edited the Washington uh, Times. And which Times Herald, which was bought out by the Washington Post in 1954, I think it was. And Waldrop had been an editor here since the 20s, and he knew the FBI very well, and lots of the people in it, you know. And he correctly guessed that it, it had to be felt. And um, I think it's because he realized this war of succession going on at the FBI. So he fingered felt, but felt denied it. And Woodward and Bernstein, of course, went into this mode of we are not going to reveal our, mm -hmm. the names of our sources. This is after they broke every other stipulation of the agreement that they had with Felt. Nevertheless, they weren't going to reveal his name. So then you have the guessing game. And initially, in all the President's Men, they presented Felt as a whistleblower who was concerned about saving the presidency. 
you know, the integrity of the presidency. And as the decades passed, Woodward lets out clues occasionally, such as uh, the man has been identified as deep throat, but has denied it. But he would also let out uh, disinformation, like this man was not part of the intelligence community. Anybody uh, you know is familiar with that term knows that the FBI is part of the intelligence community. Um, sometimes he would lie to his friends. Richard Cohen, a colleague at the Post, thought it was Mark Felt, and Woodward dissuaded him from writing a column about that, said, you'd be making a terrible mistake. Um, anyway, um, in 2005, Felt's family, by that time he was suffering from dementia, and um, they persuaded him to come forward. And there was a big article in Vanity Fair written by the family lawyer, John O'Connor. And then Woodward came out with a book, The Secret Man, uh, about a month later. He'd been working on it for years because he knew felt was going to die soon um, and in this book he sort of went away from the depiction and all the president's men he tried to suggest that felt had leaked to protect the integrity of the FBI vis-a-vis -vis the White House which was a subtle shift and when I first read it I accepted it too you know because of the reputation of the Nixon White House you know rapacious uh, but when you start to talk to people at the bureau and the prosecutors, uh, you realize there's, it's, it doesn't make sense because the investigation wasn't stopped. It was like a, you know, a freight train. I mean, once the FBI gets going, you don't stop it. You know, a White House aide doesn't call up the FBI and just says, you know, you can't do this. It doesn't work that way. So uh, I started asking around, and then I found out that Nixon had found out that Felt had leaked, was a leaker. He didn't know he was Deep Throat because he didn't know the nickname, but he knew he was leaking as of October 72. And that my question was, why didn't he fire him? Or why didn't he fire him right after the election? So I called up William Ruckel's house, who was the acting director when Gray fell, nomination fell through. And he said, I asked him, what did President Nixon say to you when he asked you to become acting director about Mark Felt? He said, he's a leaker, watch out for him. And I fired him for leaking. Well, according to Woodward's books, Felt just left the bureau to take advantage of a better pension. But that's not what happened at all. And when I started investigating that story, which is uh, complicated, one we can get into if you want, but basically um, I realized that Felt was leaking to destroy his, his perceived rivals, number one, Pat Gray, but also a former FBI official named William Sullivan, who was his real nemesis. F Felt being about 6'1", I guess, and... William Sullivan in, in elevator shoes being about five six, I think, a feisty Irishman. Anyway, they they had a bitter rivalry, and Felt was leaking to destroy both of them. And suddenly, I realized this made a lot more sense than any, you know, concern for lawlessness or protecting the FBI from the Nixon White House. I mean, especially you know, this is right after Hoover. You have almost 50 years of a culture and independence in that organization, which has probably never been 
seen in the U.S. government and will never be replicated again. I mean, the FBI was not controlled by the Justice Department under Hoover, famously. I mean, no attorney general could... Hoover was the wiliest bureaucrat there was. I remember when I interviewed Helms about him, he said whenever he had a meeting with Hoover, afterwards he'd check his pants to make sure he still <laughs> had his wallet in his pocket. Uh, so the idea that you could uh, control uh, or stop the FBI just doesn't hold water. The uh, again, staying with this with the motivation, um, <clears throat> you really attribute a great deal of it. I think, in essence, to his personal ambition. Uh, in other words, eliminate you know, sort of trying to deflect his rivals as well as sort of promoting himself as the best man for the job. Um, on this issue of motivation, it's very interesting because at some point, Ben Bradley, who was then at the Post, of course, was managing editor and uh, talks about the need for the reporter to understand the motivation of his source. And I, I thought about that a great deal because uh, in, in my background, being in the clandestine service of CIA, I dealt with sources all the time. And they were covert sources, they were secret sources. And the issue of motivation was always of concern to us, but we realized that that often because of the nature of the relationship, you're often only seeing the source from time to time. You may see them in a broader context, but you're not sitting down and doing a psychological assessment or asking them to take a test. That often, I think, in these kinds of situations, and I compare the Woodward deep throat relationship to a covert relationship. It's very similar. Yeah. You don't know them. You, you may guess at it. You may try and have a sense of it. You look at the product, that is what you're being told, and try and determine, well, why am I being told this? And we now know, certainly from your book, there were a number of things that Felt didn't tell Woodward. Uh, he certainly made no allusion to previous, uh, his own previous in, in involvement in FBI improprieties, which were revealed by the, the, the media Pennsylvania uh, uh, escapade where the FBI's COINTEL Pro was, was revealed. And so, uh, and, and I think you use a lot of that as evidence in making your case for what motivated Mark Felt. But I think there are real limitations on either a CIA case officer or a reporter in, in really getting to the bottom of motivation. Bradley seems to make a point of you need to understand the motivation. I, I think that's often very difficult to it, do. It is difficult, and I think you should try to understand. You may not always understand. Um, I don't fault Woodward and Bernstein in the slightest for using Felt as a source during the Watergate period from June until whenever. Uh, if he was willing to tell them things, you know, a reporter listens and corroborates. So I don't, what, you know, where my quibble starts is in all the president's men when they depict Felt as having a certain motive based on speculation, really. No, no evidence whatsoever. They just believe he would never tell them an untruth. It was good enough to know he would never tell them an untruth. And he was concerned about the office of the presidency. It's Woodward and Bernstein who've injected a certain motive uh, to deep throat. And so therefore, I think it's, it's fair game to look at it carefully now that we know who deep throat was. And does it hold water? that he was leaking for honorable reasons. Well, I don't think it does. 
Well, I know one of your sources, and you talk to many people, and, and you, you name them for the most part, uh, was Woodward himself. Do you know where he comes out today? I'm sure you've, you've discussed this, the findings of your investigation with him. Well, I used uh, his book, The Secret Man, really yes. as my best interview. I only had, when I talked to him, very specific questions um, that I found troubling. Uh, and one was, there was a difference between his typed-up notes of his interviews with Deep Throat and what's what was presented in the secret in, in all the president's men, and I found that troubling because um, sometimes the meaning of what felt said was changed slightly, but enough to make a difference in the meaning. Um, and those are the kinds of things uh, I asked him about. I didn't actually, you know, he said felt is the secret man. He's impenetrable. You know, good luck on finding his motive. I never could and no one else is going to succeed if I didn't. It was kind of that sort of thing. Well, I think uh, certainly his, uh, his uh, I'd be very interested to see what his take on, on, on this, on the results of your own investigation. And I know you had access to his papers because he and Bernstein had donated them. And how about John Dean? You also had a chance to talk to him. Right. That was uh, extremely fascinating because in 1973 when he testified, I was glued to the television. I had worked, you know, at a very, very low level in the McGovern campaign, and I believed Watergate was more than it was purported to be. Um, <clears throat> so I watched those hearings with the greatest of attention, and I, I think it was he testified for an entire week. And, uh, you know, to think here I was. 38, 39 years later, talking to this fellow. And it was very interesting because, you know, most of the time you find that people who are involved in these big events, you know, that was then and they've moved on in life. And if they're willing to talk to you, they're not engaged or they don't, you know, go to the effort of recalling. But he's very, uh, he's actually working on a book on Watergate himself. And he's always writing about it and... He, for a while, tried to find out who Deep Throat was. So it's, you know, very interesting to talk to someone who was involved in this great big scandal, and it's still, you know, in front of his face as much as it is in front of mine at the time. So, um, and he was very, and he's, now he's very controversial. There are going to be some people, I think, who don't like my book because, you know, I talked to John Dean, and I didn't think he's the worst scoundrel since, you know, I don't know what. Uh, he, you know, among Nixon people in particular, he's still seen as, as the, you know, it's really his fault. He wasn't acting in the president's behalf. What he was doing was, you know, he's, his scheming was, you know, he thought it up himself, and then he betrayed the president. I don't quite agree with that. Um but but did you have a specific question? No, no, I, I was, uh, it, because John Dean was one of those figures who was so impressive in his public testimony for his command of the material. Right. And I think certainly the question you just raised is, you know, that it was his fault. Well, certainly the tapes and other things support, I think, much of what Dean was saying at the time. 
But uh, this has just been a fascinating uh, tromp through that period of history. And I think anybody, and I think uh, people interested in current affairs, that period has had such an impact really on our political history. I mean, that continues today, how the public views government and Watergate still uh, has a ring to it. And although often people aren't quite sure what that what that was, I think you helped to explain a lot of it, both in your book, and I'm going to mention it again, Leak, Max Holland, Why Mark Felt Became Deep Throat, and this is Kansas University Press, and uh, Mark, I understand you're working on a book on the Warren Commission. Right. When are you hoping to go to press with that? It should be out next year. Okay, mm-hmm. all right. Well, I will be in line to read it. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been fascinating. Thank you, Peter. Well, we look forward to uh, continuing uh, this dialogue with you. And uh, we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast, uh, you can get in touch with us uh, through email at spycast at spymuseum, that's one word, dot org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you.